Hello, I'm Ricky. And I'm Joe, and this is Season 6, Episode 18 of the Beer and Broadband Podcast, and it's slated to come out on November 13th, 2023. We did take uh, a week off, I think it was a whole week, and uh, sorry about not announcing that, but uh, you know, we uh, had Ren fairs to go to and stuff like that, so we're now finishing things up for the for the uh, last of the season, uh, but... Today, we're going to be talking about a really special and important Tweed Ale that I think is only near and dear to most North Carolinians. Maybe South Carolinians, too, because we have uh, Cheerwine down there. So, this is Noda Brewing Company's Cheerwine Ale. Um, they don't really say very much about it other than it's a uniquely southern wheat ale crafted with perfect touch of cherry proudly presented from two family-owned companies in the Carolinas. 5.2% ABV, and Ricky's been sipping on it. So, what do you think? I'll start with this. Not a huge fan. It's not something I would drink very often. Mm-hmm. But they nailed it. Yeah. This tastes exactly like cheer wine. You know, it's a little bit less sweet, a little bit more obviously alcoholic. It's, you know, an ale. But, I mean, if you like cheer wine, this is like 90% cheer wine in terms of flavor profile. That is 100% correct. It's not as sweet as cheer wine, mm-hmm. but it tastes like cheer wine. Yeah, it really yeah. does. Like, if I was blindfolded, I would easily be able to guess this was cheer wine. I would maybe even call you out and say, did you just put yeast in cheer wine to see what would happen? <laughs> yeah. Did you did you mix a little bit of like a beer and cheer wine together to see like what sort of weird Rattler you could make? See, I'm not even sure I'd go that far because it is so cheer wine heavy in terms mm-hmm. of flavor profile. Like, I'm not sure I believe this was like 50% cheer wine and 50% an ale. Like, it really does just taste like you turn some of the sugar in cheer wine into alcohol. Hey. I think that's similar enough to what they did. That mm-hmm. That's a good descript- description of it. Um, one thing that I'll say about this, so funny story. Uh, I got this, um, let's see, graduation party was somewhere in June. So right after we finished the other, like, s- half of the season. Okay, yeah. I got this, and um, I had it in the fridge. I was just saving it for when we were going to do our next you know, beer and broadband. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be like one of the first beers that we did. And uh, the my, my daughters had some extended family come over because they're, you know, we do like a foster parent thing mm-hmm. and, and all that other stuff. Um, so they had uh, some of their extended family come over and one of their uncles saw them. And I was like, yeah, you know, feel free to have like a couple of beers or anything you want in the fridge, you know, being hospitable. He drank like the whole four pack. <laughs> so he just Look, he, he liked it. He, he loved this stuff. Um, and then we have another common friend, uh, Taryn, who mm-hmm. had these like this, and she she was just like, "That is amazing! You know, this is great." So uh, yeah, I mean, if I liked cheer wine more, which I loved cheer wine as a kid, but I did that thing where you drink too much of it as a yeah. child and you don't want it as an adult. My wife still loves cheer wine. I'm probably gonna see if I can find some of these to buy her. Yeah, because she loves like a cheer wine float, and this would make a great cheer wine float. It would make a great alcoholic cheer wine float. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, you could do that with vodka and cheer wine, but this would also achieve that with a lower yeah. ABV. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I think this probably tastes better than cheer wine and vodka because the agree. I was just saying you could have an alcoholic float with both. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> you, could, you could spike it with something. But I mean, it even just the like 
flavor of the alcohol itself melds so well with the cheer wine, um, the rest of the flavor. Whereas, like, you know, vodka almost has, like, a medicinal taste a lot of times. Right. You know, so, yeah, I'm, I gotta say, I'm pretty impressed by it. You know, again, I wouldn't drink another one. I'm probably not gonna finish what you poured me, but it is an impressive creation. Yeah, it is. It's pretty impressive. Um, I, I thought the, one of the reasons that I thought that this would be fun for us to do is we did that sweet tea, mm-hmm. the Bojangles sweet tea that was just horrendous. It was. And th- that's not this. I mean, this is yeah, not this my is personal. Amazing. Yeah, it's, this is not my personal preference, but like, it's not bad. Like, it is objectively very well crafted. I mean, it's very impressive. It's probably one of the more impressive things I've had on this podcast in terms of, like, how well it nails its flavor profile. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, like, what, the, um, there was that Deschutes, um, the Abyss, Mm. this, um, Dragon's Milk, which I think we both agree really nails the flavor profile. Not the white, but the, the regular Dragon's Milk. And um, there's another one that was um, a um, fruit beer. Yeah, we had a fruit beer once. It was like almost cidery. It was yeah, so, it so was fruit so forward. Good. Yeah, yeah. I I think this one is in that category, like of the ones that we've had. We, there's like a top tier of just well crafted hits the nail mm-hmm. on the head kind of thing, and this is one of them. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean. Uh, we talk about that a lot that, you know, sometimes, well, I'm not really getting this flavor. They say there is like how accurate is the bottle to what it is. And I mean, that's cheer wine ale. Yeah. It's done. Absolutely. Um, the only thing that I could think of that I wished was a little bit like if, if they could improve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this would take it from being like a beer to like a cider is if it was like a cheer wine drink that was alcoholic and you didn't have like some of the beer flavors, the malty. Yeah. You're saying like if, uh, instead of it being like a wheat beer, it was like a fruit beer that was actually like a cherry fruit beer. Right. Yeah. 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 I could see that. I could also see this potentially being darker. Yeah. Um, just cause it's, you know, bring out a little bit more of that sweetness, but in all honesty, this is great. Yeah. This is pretty fantastic. Um, so yeah, if you're into cheer wine and you're, um, into, yeah, or you can get the Noda Cheerwine L. I think I got it at like Total Wine, so you should grab some. Uh, oh no, I got it at a Harris Teeter because um, I remember now. Um, so let's talk about the PS5 Slim. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen that it was announced? Uh, after I saw the notes, yeah. Um, pretty fantastic. So before I start going into what I was, you know, kind of planning on talking about or whatever, what do you think about the PS5 Slim just in general? I'll be honest. I've never been a huge fan of like that slim trend that PlayStation does that they release the same console essentially a couple of years later in a smaller form factor. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess that's cool. If you were one of those people that haven't gotten a PS5 yet, you can now get a smaller one. I think it's a, I don't want to say it's on the nose, but people had such a hard time getting a PS5 for so long. Mm-hmm. Even people who like have wanted a PS5 don't all have it yet. And now you're releasing like a new version of the PS5. Right. And I don't want this to become another like, oh, well, you know, eventually they made enough regular PS5s that we couldn't price gouge it anymore. But now we got the slim. Yeah. So like their supply chain is going to need to be on point for the, not to do that, you know, $1,000 on eBay sort of deal. I, I can't agree with that. Um, and there are people, you know, influencers and, you know, just 
tech bros and people like mm. that who are like, oh, no, i got to get a PS5 Slim. Um, looking at my PS5 sitting over there and how big it is, because it's a pretty significant yeah. console. It's the largest console that I own. Mm-hmm. Um, it, If I had the option to have a Slim but have all the same functionality, I could see that uh, if I was buying one right now. Yeah. Um, do I think there should be two P- PlayStation models or effectively four PlayStation models on the, um, you know, like out there for consumers to buy, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the same product skew? Probably not. Um, I feel like that's a little, like, Yeah, it's a little weird. much. Yeah. And I feel like it devalues people who have a PS5 already. Like, if you want right. to go trade it in, and I'll trade it for less because there's a newer, slimmer one out. Though I do, I do like the slim trend more than I like the pro trend that Xbox does. Yeah. Uh, I don't like that they do like, uh, and they haven't done it every console generation, but the, um, I think they've done it at least twice where it's like, here's the base one. And now a year or two later, we're going to release a slightly enhanced version of it. Well, both PlayStation and Xbox did that last time, um, which I actually kind of like, ha- like if you're going to do a, a like different version of, something mm-hmm. then i would prefer that that something be an enhanced version not the same thing just in a slightly different form factor you know like with a blue case instead mm-hmm. of a white case yeah. or something like that right well yeah i'm i'm the opposite but let me tell you why i have seen that when they start doing things like the pros and the whatever they called the other one mm-hmm. they call them both pro that games still come out for that console but it always ends up running better on one versus the other. Right. So, like, if you can't upgrade to the newer one, games are going to start coming out that just don't run very well on yours because now they're being optimized for the new one. I agree with that. Um, so th- that's the problem with the Series S. No, it's not the Series S. It was one of the Xbox, um, the Xbox One whatever yeah something you know. like that uh, so they didn't call them pros for the xbox it was pros for the um playstation oh it was okay yes because that that's how i got my playstation i got a ps4 pl- pro oh, and okay. um so one of the things that i didn't like about the last generation was that sony and microsoft both made products to begin with that they did they didn't like just kind of replace you know, like this is this is an old one. This is a completely new generation. They were like, this is an inc- this is like a a point five version yeah, yeah. of this generation. Um, so I agree with you on that. I'm just saying, like, if like, so I'm not going to go buy a PlayStation Five Slim, mm-hmm. but if there was one that existed to entice me to buy something, I would want it to give me more functionality. I would prefer that to be a new console, yeah. <laughs> you know, like a new version of the console, um, or just leave it like it is and optimize. Cause I mean, my PlayStation four still, I just finished playing a video game on it this weekend or this week. Sorry. I, I forgot that I've been off all week, but this week I just finished playing, um, one of the God of Wars. I think it was the first one. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. the first God of War cause I hadn't completely finished everything on it. So I, I played that on my PS4 pro it was just great. Um, my PS5, pretty awesome. Um, the Xboxes that I've ever had, they've been pretty great. I still play my 360 every now and then. It's a great little console. Oh, yeah. Um, 
I just don't see the um, appeal of having a device that is slim has the same functionality and I know that there are people out there that are like yeah but it looks better and it does this and it does you have to understand I'm not a aesthetics person necessarily I prefer function over form not form over function I think both of us kind of share that yeah and um, so if you're one of those people that's like no form like Apple's got it right form matters more than function you know, uh, the user experience is the most important thing and all this other stuff. We share some common agreements there, but for the most part, if the user experience is on point, I don't care if it's a little bit bigger or a little bit heavier. I also am a very strong, very tall, very large man. So take that from that grain of salt, you know? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think we also live in a world that people don't travel with their consoles as much as they used to. You know, it's very true. Back when consoles were comparatively more expensive and things like that, you know, I would take my N64 and stuff over to friends' house all the time because I didn't have one. Um, but I don't see that happening as much anymore. I think it's probably because a lot of consoles now are sold at a loss. You know, they're much comparative to the games and everything else, much cheaper than they used to mm -hmm. be. Uh, it's true, and the chances are, if you're going over to your friend's house to play a game your friend already has the console. Like yeah. Now they're so ubiquitous, people own them. Uh, if you have the console, people are coming to your house if they don't have it. Generally. Yeah, that's true. And also, you know, the the days of like split-screen co-op and stuff like that are pretty much gone. There's still some, but it's, it's no longer the default. Most of the yeah. time now when someone says it's a multiplayer game, that's online-only multiplayer. It's either online-only or it's if it has split-screen co-op, it is a function that is for like, well, remember in the past when we used to do this kind of stuff. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily, you know. Yeah, it's not super well optimized for it or, you know, or right. just the stretching of the resolutions don't look good. Exactly. All right. So the thing that I wanted to talk about about this, <laughs> all that, that background, have you seen the thing where they've got a disk drive that's an add-on so that they'll sell you the digital version. It's cheaper. Mm -hmm. You get a disk drive, and it's an add-on. What do you think about that? I don't know. I think, look, I'll say this. As long as that disk drive works very well, and it's not cumbersome to set up and maintain, I don't really have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. Because I think that does simplify your manufacturing process. And it simplifies your inventory systems mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, so there is an advantage there. But I think also at the same time, it's a lot easier for someone that wants to go digital only to say, like a company that wants to go digital only, to be like, okay, yeah, the console doesn't come with it, but we'll sell you this add-on. And the next generation, they just don't have that add-on. They just don't have the add-on, right? Yep. And that's kind of the direction that everyone's going, which if it was DRM-free or something like that, I wouldn't mind. Um, but not being able to have my own, which, I mean, having a physical copy now, whether it's a Nintendo Switch copy or whatever, everything has to sign into some server to be able to mm -hmm. be unlocked and blah, blah, blah. While I understand we have to prevent people from stealing IP, punishing me with not being able to play this thing later or in the direction that I want to play it in or something like that is not the right, but we've talked about like stuff like that before. Um, so if you, I'm not really a fan of DRM. I, I don't want, I'm not like huge on piracy, 
but I'm not a fan of DRM. <laughs> yeah, DRM in most implementations is is pretty rough. Yeah. I mean, even the stuff that Steam does is still pretty rough in terms of if you're trying to own a game and share a game, but at least they give you the rest of the Steam experience. But Steam doesn't, like, the DRM that comes with that is optional based on the developer. Steam, Steam doesn't lock you into that. So, like, they have, like, their own thing. They're like, well, you have to launch the Steam client to be able to access the game, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But just like with, um, they don't have a mandate, so they're kind of middle of the road on that. So then you have like good old games where they're like, there is no DRM. You, you can't put DRM on, like have something and put it on our store and it have DRM. It's DRM free. People can launch it without our launcher, you know, have fun, do whatever they want to. You can't be part of our store if it's not like that. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, consoles and other launchers like the Bethesda launcher mm. <laughs> before it got shut down. I'll go the complete opposite direction. Right. Um, so here's the thing. It's got hardware DRM on it. You, it's got so it's this pogo pin thing. It doesn't really use screws or anything like that. It just kind of like attaches in just like and it looks just like this, right? Mm -hmm. It's got a little plate. You put it over it, and got a slot. Put it in. I everything up to that part. I was like, oh, this is cool. You know, like whatever. In order for the thing to work, it has to call home to one of Sony's servers. Mm. And, like, if you took it off and put it on someone else, like, if you had, like, a console that was broken but the disk drive wasn't broken, and let's say in 10 years when they're no longer supporting it mm -hmm. and they've taken those servers down, that's just going to quit working. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I think I know why they're doing some stuff like this. I know why... A lot of businesses are also now pushing towards subscriber models. Like I'm not sure if you've seen, uh, like, kept up with financial news, but like tons of companies are slashing employee benefits, yep. or, like letting employees go, because it's undeniable we're going to be heading towards some rough economic times yep. in the next couple of years. So I get that, you know, this sort of recurring revenue you don't want to lose money to people's like stealing or sharing your product, but at the same time, I really feel. I don't know too many people anymore that aren't still really young that buy a lot of AAA games anymore. Yeah. Like, I have not bought a AAA game from, like, a big studio that you would consider, like, entrenched in the industry. So, like, I don't consider Baldur's Gate 3 a, like, entrenched in industry type of game. Mm. It's not with one of the, like, the big five or ten developers and publishers. Yeah, so it's, it's not, not EA, EA, it's not Blizzard. It's not Blizzard. Yeah. yeah, it's not one of those. Yeah, that sort of or stuff. Activision, not Blizzard. Mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah, I mean, because frankly, mm. most of those big studios aren't releasing that those many actually really good games for no, the value. You know, Capcom is maybe a bit of an exception. They've done really good with, like, their Resident Evil remakes yeah. and some of their other stuff. But, like, the Silent Hill that just came out from Konami is a joke. Yeah. You know? So uh, I just see more and more people are playing these kind of, like, early access or indie games mm -hmm. and really enjoying them. Yeah. And they're cheaper, and they don't have these problems. So, like... You know what? Uh, what are you gonna do about that? The rest of the gaming industry. Yeah, you got to figure something out. And uh, I mean, I've you know I've got Dave the Diver. It runs on my Steam Deck. It's an awesome game. I can play mm -hmm. it on my PC. It's got cross compatible saves. That is an experience that if I could have that across all of my consoles, like I bought Dave the Diver, I play it on my PC. Now I can play it on my PS5, and I just move between the three of them. Mm -hmm. Marion tries to do that. Uh, some of the other game studios have tried to do that, but the, this, because of the way you have to like transfer the saves, like makes it kind of clunky. Um, if Sony, like Sony's putting 
Sony and Microsoft putting so much effort into trying to protect their, you know, IP that they're not even thinking about like the real important part of user experience, right? Yeah. Um, and because they're not thinking about that, they're not like actually making a better user experience. They're not actually making things better. They're releasing stupid knickknacks like the PS5 Slim. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yay. Thank you. I mean, that's great. I do love my PS5, but um, I mostly play games on my Steam Deck. So eh, it just feels like a first world problem and it's stupid. But yeah, I mean, get a PS5 Slim if you want one, but I'm probably not going to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the PS5 Slim is really there for people who don't have a PS5 yet. If you don't have one, hey, either the older one's about to become cheaper on the used market or the new one's a little bit better form factor, you know, go mm -hmm. for it. Yeah. Have fun. All right, let's talk about in industry certi certi blah, blah. industry certificates. We suggest that anyone works in IT gets, and I named two of them here um, because I think anyone that works in IT is either going down a like a management route or they're going down like a um, like a technical like kind of advisor right, mm -hmm. like kind of route. Like this is. This is what you should deploy, especially as you like get past like your first like three or four years in IT. Right? Yeah, once you're out of your kind of like peak engineering days, you either end up as like a tech lead or a people lead. Right, um, and so when when you do that, and, and I mean that's essentially like us, right? Like we worked together. I was kind of like your um, technical leader there for a little while. You were my developer, and now you're more of like a people leader, and I am more of like a tech technical lead. Right, mm -hmm. right. Um, so that said, I think, especially if you're a technical leader, it goes well for both like sides of it. But if you're doing technical lead stuff, having an ITIL 4 or 3 or whatever version of ITIL mm -hmm. there is, um, is really helpful for understanding like support processes, how you get inputs and outputs for things, you know, in any sort of process. It is a ridiculous system that is very British, <laughs> you know. So for any of my uh, British friends that are out there that are listening, I'm not insulting you, but you also have to admit that you guys like love to have a lot of processes and rules, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, ITIL is, but it also is very. It's like it gives you like the sandbox that you can kind of play in, but you understand how all the different components work together. And the deeper you get into that, I think it's better, you know, to like you, you go from like just the foundation to uh, what is the master or whatever the next one is. I, yeah, I don't yeah. remember exactly what it is. You go through that, that eventually becomes more of like a management or a project management type certificate track. So it's not a perfect thing for technical people, mm -hmm. but it like just a if I'm just going to get a certificate that's not like a CCMA or a Red Hat, um, you know, certificate or something like that, uh, or one of the Azure or AWS certificates, this one is, I think, really good and can be used in any industry that you're working in. Um, yeah, that's true, because ITIL is really not so much about, it's like, it's service management. It's right. not necessarily IT service management. Right. You know, there's a couple things that are maybe a little bit more IT focused, but just the same thing as like with, you know, agile processes, it's about a way of work and not right. the actual work. 
But I am going to say this. I, I disagree with you pretty hard on this. Okay. With one exception. If your company will pay for it, then absolutely go for it. Oh, yeah. Um, if you have to pay for it out of pocket, I think this is one of the worst shirts you can get. And I agree. Know. I agree with that. But uh, this is also kind of like the A plus cert. Like if I was working for the government and they were going to pay for me to get an A plus or a security plus or something like that, I'd totally get those. Yeah. If I was paying for but, it out of pocket, I wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I still, I still think there's, there's instances of the A plus and things like that are valuable. But at the end of the day, you can get an, uh, with your study material and your exams, you can get an A plus for less than $500. Mm-hmm. Um, probably a lot less. I forget what they're, I don't know what they're charging for the test right now. But, you know, I got mine. I think the test was like 200 bucks when I took it. And uh, it was 250 at the time that you took it. Okay. So it was around the, like two, uh, 200, 250. And yeah. my book was only about like 40, 50 bucks. So I spent about $300 to get it. The ITIL, to even sit to take to the exam, you generally have to pay three or $4,000. Right, right. Uh, because you can't take the exam until you've taken one of their official courses. And frankly, the material is good. But you can find ITIL books. Mm-hmm. You can find, like, even people who put together Quizlets for when they've taken the ITIL. The information is valuable, but they're not hard exams. Like, if you're if you're sitting here listening right now and you are, like, an engineer, or you're, like, doing troubleshooting, or you're, like, already in the tech field, you will have no problem picking up any book and learning all the material they have in the fundamental in just a matter of days. Yeah. And then you've got all the education. Um, the barrier for the certificate doesn't make much sense to me. Unless, again, you know, a lot of ITIL companies, as part of their, like, ITIL partnership, will pay for the training. At which point, yeah, go take it. You're not paying for it. It's a good cert to have. It does teach you a lot about project management and service management. Mm-hmm. But if you're sitting right now, hey, I want to up my game, but right now I'm, you know, working at a call center or I'm part of, like, a local IT team, and they're not going to pay for my training, um, I'd much rather say, hey, look, save that money, go save that for your next technical exam, and just go buy a book and go learn this stuff. Yeah, so let me roll back a little bit, and let me caveat this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you work for a company that pays for these certificates, do not get these on your own. Yeah. But if you can get the education for them, they're very helpful. Yes. Even if, like, if you're like, I don't know what ITIL is, um, you know, go look it up. There's also one for um, uh, uh, the oh, – um, forgetting it's not OSHA it's not OSI because those are the wrong things but there's another one um, that's a that's another industry standard it's more like uh, APJC like kind of centric mm-hmm. um, and then you have like uh, another one that's like the engineering task force the, the EITF or something like that um, or IETF or something like that but the 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 point that I was trying to get to is if you work for a company and you're trying to advance your career and you have these options to go take, nobody's going to tell you, hey, this one's more for like a technical standpoint. This one will help you more technically. And this one helps you to become more of like a people leader or to mm. like do these things. Um, the ITIL can kind of do both. Um, you know, anything that gives you like some soft skills that help you to be both a leader and understand technical processes is good for you if you're a technical person, I yeah. think. Yeah, and I think, you know, in that type of scenario, you also get maybe one of the best blankets of liability, which is I'm doing what the process is supposed to be. Right. You know, I, th- I think I've done the saying a couple times, but, like, the in the IT industry, 
um, maybe not so much nowadays, but when I was growing up, the, the big fun saying was, you know, nobody gets fired for doing what Google did. Right. You know, if uh, when things go wrong and you can say, look, but we did it by the books, things just happen sometimes. And you can show, like, look, I'm certified in this. I know how to do it. It's just, you know, look, there's always accidents. Uh, that looks a lot better than, hey, I'm somebody with no process training who did something and it didn't work out very well. Right. Because then they'll come back at you and say, okay, well, what did you do wrong? Versus not where did the process fail? You know? I agree with that. I, th I think another certificate that falls into this, like if I was getting it on my own, like mm -hmm. I was paying my own dime, I would not get it. But um, one of the ones that I'm looking at next to get from like a technical standpoint, because I've done training for it. I've even written like some industry standard test questions for it. The CISSP or mm -hmm. the CSSP. Yep. You know, those are really good from like a security um, technical standpoint and like a understanding ma management kind of technical standpoint. Um, so I, I think those are good also certificates that fit in this realm. They're oh, industry yeah. standard. Absolutely. They give you a lot of process information. They give you a lot of like context of what's going on. Um, the other one that I had on here, which I didn't have the CISSP on here, but is the Agile PMI, uh, like the practitioner mm -hmm. certificate, because that really, I've taken a waterfall training before. I've taken some other ones. I feel like the Agile one gives you the most context to what project management actually is supposed to achieve. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you work in an Agile shop, then... Yeah, I always recommend taking some of the either the practitioners or ideally, you know, even if you're not like a POPM, most of those certificate tracks that come into this training have mm -hmm. a POPM cert. I highly encourage people to go take that mm. because you as an engineer, you know your technical work. You're really like just mostly consuming stories. So like understanding the terminology and stuff is great for like the practitioner, but understanding how requests from customers flow into your POs or your PMs making stories that come down to you can be very helpful because frankly I don't know too many shops that stick to the standard of how you're supposed to write a story and frankly the way you're supposed to write a story is kind of long and convoluted yeah. anyway so but just understanding that flow of a request comes in I do something of value value goes out is important yeah understanding those value streams is very important because it helps you just as an engineer, better understand your work and how your work is going to be viewed by the people making like hiring decisions, promotion decisions, things like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I couldn't think of like, I, I didn't really sit down and start thinking of like all the ones that are out there because there's a ton. Oh, of, yeah. There's a bajillion agile trainers and stuff like that. Well, and there's even pro pro project management trainers and stuff like that. I, well, I mean, on top of that, um, there's like, uh, data science certificates mm -hmm. uh, if you're working like I mean even like being a network engineer I need a little bit of data science and understanding how um, business and analysis works at a technical leadership level because I need to understand how the process works and also how we get the data and then I can question the data more thoroughly um, not that I, I like being that guy who's like oh you did it wrong or whatever but mm -hmm. I can actually question it, validate it. If it's right, then great. If it's not right, then I can help to correct that instead of just criticizing, you know, um, which that's the worst thing about being someone that's untrained in these things is you get some of that training, 
you then have people that are educated in it that are saying, no, this is the way it's supposed to be because blank, blank, blank. And then like you come down to it and you're like, no, that's not really the way this is supposed to be. And they kind of like fight a little bit back and forth about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody, especially in IT really should take like a data analysis or a data science course Mm -hmm. to understand that a little bit better because really what those things hammer down to you, you know, once you get out of the mathematics and the analytics, the part is that the quality of the data coming in is the largest factor on how well you can actually draw conclusions. Yep. And that's sometimes something that gets missed by people who have less of an education in it. Mm -hmm. So I see all the time, you know, management or somebody else will come in and say, Hey, I need data for X. And we just almost be like, look, we can try but it, will ne- it won't be good right? because, you know, an example, we wanted to know what sort of cases came in for a very particular issue mm-hmm. that there's no coding metrics for. Right. So I can't go in there, you know, uh, when we resolve the case, it's not like we have a drop down in our menu for this issue. So there's no way for the engineers to actually record that's exactly what the problem was. Instead, the best we could do was, all right, I'm going to look for keywords in the description right. or in the resolution notes. And that's not great nope. at all. Um, you can get some general trends with that, but it, you'll never get a hard number. Right. Because let's say, you know, we'll, we'll do it something real simple. Let's say um, somebody was getting like blue screens on their laptop and you don't have a code for that. And you want to find out how often people are like engineers are dealing with blue screens. Okay. Well, what are you gonna, what are you going to call that in the resolution notes? You're going to search resolution because the case notes are going to be too large. Yep. Um, so you're going to say, okay, um, blue, look for the word blue. Oh, someone had a problem where their, uh, their color scheme wasn't right. That's going to show up. Someone said that, you know, found out issues the user was they had blue light turned off, which is why their screen was orange. Right. You know, um, maybe you put blue screen or blue and screen. Okay. Well now someone's recording it as a crash. Yeah. So maybe you put in crash, but all crashes aren't blue screens. Right. You know, um, and you run into that level that uh, if you're not sanitizing your data, you really can't do a whole lot with it that's precise. Exactly. And I, th- I, I think that that is, that is the nail on the head of the value that things like this bring. If you don't understand how processes work, you really can't criticize or improve your processes. Yeah. If you don't understand how your planning works, you really can't criticize or improve your planning process. If you don't understand how your data is gathered and what good data is versus bad data metrics, you can't understand, you know, how to improve those things. And mm-hmm. as a technical or a people leader, that should be your goal. Uh, you know, there's like three things that you're supposed to do. One, improve the technical ability of whatever company you're working for to do better. Two, you should be improving the technical or um, career goals of your people. And then three, you should be responsible with the stuff that's been given to you. You know, kind of give so that they'll, like, you know, watch the people and make sure that they're taken care of so that they'll take care of you kind of mindset, right? Yep. Um, yeah, so I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was no, just no, agreeing with you. <laughs> I get nerdy about these things. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, but did, uh, did you want to say anything more about about that or? No, I think we're good. You know, I, I think it if your company will pay for it, soft skills are always important. Mm-hmm. And look at a couple hard skills that are maybe not your core task, but can help you complete it. You know, things like data analysis, data science. You know? Right. If you're not, if your day to day job is not programming, but you deal with a lot of automation, go find out what language that's written in. Yeah. Go take a little course on that, so that you can understand it a little bit better. Yep. Exactly. Um, I mean, I can't tell you, we, we use a lot of Python in our mm-hmm. shop, how much better I got at being valuable. I mean, I was already pretty technically astute at being a network engineer, but just adding that little bit of a skill set to my network engineering tool belt, like just mm-hmm. like really open doors. So you should totally do that if that's option for you. And I know that some of the people that <laughs> are on this, uh, like listen to this podcast, they're like uh, developers. Uh, so, you know, I would also say it kind of the opposite way. Like if you don't know enough about hardware or like the hardware that your stuff runs on or mm-hmm. anything like that, which I think they probably do, but, um, you should learn that because that makes you better at whatever, like being more, a better engineer means that you understand better the whole engineering process, oh, yeah. not just one yeah. aspect of it. If you're just a developer, go learn networking. Yep. You know? Knowing how your data is going to travel from your app to your server and everything like that can be very useful. Absolutely. It helps troubleshooting when things don't work, too. Oh, yeah, exactly. I can't tell you how many cases I've seen over the years of a developer who thinks there's something wrong with the network. It wasn't the network. It was something else. Um, and, you know, that's not a fault of theirs. Network's there to help them when right. those things break. But if you'd known a little bit more networking, you might have been able to save yourself a couple of days on your project because you weren't waiting for network to fix a problem that wasn't there. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, I think this is the end of this episode. So um, this has been season six, episode 18, the Beer and Broadband podcast. It's supposed to come out on November 13th, 2023. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.